uh, the fall, just a couple weeks, we start Fairhaven. Fairhaven starts on Thursday, September 6th already. And uh, we don't waste any time. So we get right into it September 6th, Thursday morning, 9.30, Thursday evening at 6.30. So um, we're going to be studying line by line, verse by verse of the Gospel of Matthew. And so it is, let me just tell you, it is going to be a less, it's going to be a year you don't want to miss because you're going to fall in love with Jesus, your Savior, more than you ever did before. How can you miss, huh? And then, uh, then September 11, 9, 10, and 11, September 10 and 11, Monday night, the 10th, we start um, in the legacy room uh, back to normal at 6.30. And Tuesday morning, the 11th, we will have it at 9.30. So there is your Friday, there, that's your Fairhaven and your um, Deer Central. So... <laughs> you only need to remember one thing, uh, my dearest, and that's September 11, which shouldn't be hard to remember because September 11, 930, right where you always used to come. Tuesday morning. Did I say Thursday? Fairhaven is Thursday, so you don't even forget I even said that because you come on Tuesday, all right? Tuesday at 930, expecting the front row. Tuesday morning girls have trouble with it. <laughs> I know it. I know it. This is a token of our appreciation. Oh. We love you. We love that you love God's word and you teach us so faithful. So thank you. Well, you're welcome. I didn't expect this at all. Thanks so much. What a bonus. Thank you. Yep. You know, I just always marvel at how the Lord just supplies and, and I just keep saying yes and he just keeps supplying. So that's, I think that's a good combination. When you say yes to the Lord, you watch him supply. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. So um, anyway, anybody have any questions? And by the way, if you want, um, there's, I'm doing an Acts 1 to 9 on Wednesday night for nine weeks at Fellowship in Hudsonville. So I, I don't know if some of you are near Hudsonville Fellowship Reform. And uh, that is going to be on Wednesday evenings at 630 for nine weeks. I do four long-term at Fairhaven and Central. You know, I do those four long-term because you will get lessons from Matthew. We do one chapter a week. So um, Matthew has 28 chapters, so you're in for the long haul. And, but yeah, you don't want to miss. I mean, when you take it line by line like that, you, you see the continuity of a book. I mean, Matthew's writing this book. And... Uh, and he's got a purpose in mind, and he starts at a point, and he continues, and he expects us to not miss, miss a beat. So that's why I believe in that kind of Bible study. So, um, but I will take a short term. Um, I did at Faith Christian Reform for a couple of times last year, and, then I, and now fellowship in Hudsonville just for nine weeks. So I'll do one short term. So anyway, <sighs> let's go to the Lord. Father, we always love coming to you. You have a way of just calming us down. You have a way of just filling us with a sense of your presence because we know you're here and we know you love it. You know you love it when your children come and want to learn and mature and grow 
You love it when we want to get to know you better so that our faith grows, so that our faith gets to the point where we simply trust you. It's so easy to put our faith in our health or our family or our bank account. It's so easy to put our faith and trust in that. It's hard to to put our faith in you, and, and, and that's ridiculous because you are a sovereign, almighty God. And yet we, we falter at that, but it's because we don't know you. And the reason we don't know you is because we need to learn, and that comes from study and work and effort and discipline and self-denial, all things that the human nature just kind of doesn't like. But, Lord, when we are willing to, to be fed by your spirit and then the, the truth, the eye of truth turns on and we see the light of, of who you are, somehow it takes us more and more out of the darkness and into the light. The more we know you, the lighter it gets. And, Father, we learn to be able to surrender to you more. We're, we're, we trust you more because we know you better. This is just, a, it doesn't take rocket science to figure that out. We trust those we know. And we don't trust if we don't know. And maybe that's why we don't trust you and we trust other things. But Lord, nothing of this world is worthy of our trust. You are faithful, you are great. And so tonight we just come to you just to worship and praise you and to take these examples, these people that, that Hebrews 11 finishes with and we could have just gone on and on. But Lord, what, what examples these, these men are tonight. Lord, we can learn from their mistakes, but most of all, we can learn what faith looks like. May we see these people through the eyes of faith when they trust you, what they're able to do, and they're mere mortals just like we are. So what they were able to do, they're working with the same spirit. They're working with the same you. So we come to you tonight, and we know that life is hard, and I've got a list of, of people tonight that we know that life is hard, and every one of us has come into here with, with something that makes life difficult, that we need to trust you with. Otherwise, we just find ourselves going down that road of despair and hopelessness, but we have a different road. You've only given us two choices. It's not complicated, and it is our choice. And tonight, we come to you with hope. We come to you knowing that you are the giver of hope and that we don't need to be dwelling in a hopelessness. And so, Lord, this, this very night, we bring these these people that are loved so much by by their families, by their friends. So tonight we think of we think of Vaughn's husband Ron. We think of her son Jordan. We think of Gerda tonight. We think of her son Johnny. We think of Diane tonight. We think of Lynn who just lost her dad this morning. Lord, those are just the ones I know of right now. And Lord, we 
We'll continue to pray for Don DeWitt and his treatments. And Lord, yeah, those are the ones that were, were visible and verbal to me. And so, Lord, but every one of us can right now silently just take our something and give it to you and know that you can work in it. We can know that in all things, you can work for the good of those who love you. Everything that happens to us, you can work. And we're going to see that tonight in some of these examples, how you can take mistakes and you can take disobedience and you can still work it for good in your purpose. If that isn't grace, I don't know what is. Father, every day we live in undeserved favor. But Lord, we thank you. And the least we can do to show you how thankful we are is to give you our lives and to allow you to work in us that purpose that you created us for. That we can go into this world, this dark world, our, our homes, our neighborhoods, even our churches sometime, and we can go and be the light of Jesus because it's real. It's not a religion. This is a relationship that changed our lives. And so tonight, we just, we just want, by being here, by opening up our Bibles, by allowing your spirit to take these stories that are true and real and relate them to our own being, to our own situations, Father, we just allow you. We don't want, to, we don't want any unholy traffic to stop. We, we, want, we just give you full reign to changes tonight, and maybe it will be convicting, maybe it will be challenging, maybe whatever word, but you will do whatever it takes. You want us to be in a relationship with you that is growing and, and moving forward and looking toward in anticipation a life when we will be with you forevermore. But until that day, may, may our joy be contagious. May our love for you be contagious. May the radiancy of Jesus come out of our face that people will say, what is it about you? May, may they even in our looks see. Father, we just give you glory today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, open your Bibles, please. And uh, we're finishing up Hebrews 11. And um, I don't think we really need to turn there right away because I want you into the book of Judges. Do you remember what I said last month when you laughed? I said, um, read the book of Judges. It's the most depressing book there is. And I'm sure that wasn't, the, after I said it, I thought, well, that really wasn't encouraging. Who's going to want to read when they know it's going to be depressing? But, but I think there's a lot we can learn from, from the book of Judges, even though it is such a downer. And, uh, and the reason it's such a downer is because we saw the Israelites, God's chosen people, keep turning away to, their, to Baal. And, and I have to say, you know, when you first read it, you think, man, how in the world can they do that? How could they worship a piece of stone or whatever Baal, whatever they erected for, uh, for a presentation of Baal? You think, how can anybody worship that? But you know what Baal is? 
we can relate to that because Baal is anything we choose to trust other than our Lord Jesus. Baal can be like I prayed, our health, um, our family, our bank account, our homes, our vacations, or, or whatever. We put so much trust and so much effort and so, so much worth into those things of the world. And as precious and as valuable as they might be, when we trust them instead of trusting him, when we trust them instead of him, we will never, ever benefit all that he has for us. And he will. In fact, you saw, how many times didn't you see as you read the book of Judges, how the Lord handed him over to the enemy. His precious people, his chosen people, he handed them over. And why would he do something like that? That's kind of mean. Well, he's not mean. What he's trying to do is he loves us so much, he, he says, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get your attention so that you will wake up and you will decide that you're on the wrong path and so that's why even in the Old Testament, in the book of Judges, we can find that it is definitely relatable. So in the book of Judges, we're going to start with the, the um, we're going to go over these particular people that Hebrews 11 said. We're going to just go right through them. And in, in Judges chapter, well, I just want you to see right away in Judges chapter 2. I'm going to just show you the darkness, the dark time that Israel was in. Remember we left last week with, with Moses having grown so to the faith. He had all his yeah buts and yeah, but I can't talk good. And, and the Lord would come through and say, yeah, but I will do it through you. And then finally, when, when the, all of the million plus people were complaining like crazy when the Red Sea was before him and the Pharaoh's army was behind him, all of a sudden you saw Moses change. When you saw him, his faith come into flourishing, when he looked at those people, those complaining people who were saying, why didn't you leave us in Egypt? He looked right at him and said, let's watch the deliverance of the Lord. And he had no idea what was going to happen. But can you imagine what he thought when he raised his arms and that Red Sea separated to dry ground? Dry, not mucky, not muddy, dry ground and a million plus people were able to walk across and when the last person put their feet on the banks and even though not far behind trying to get through the Red Sea the same way was Pharaoh's army and then all of a sudden you watch the waters come back down if you put yourself in Moses shoes don't you think that you were you would be thinking man am I glad I didn't miss that and he would have missed it if he kept with his yabbats. And see how relatable that is? You wonder, man, what am I missing? What am I missing when I don't activate my faith because I'm so afraid? And I don't trust him. I don't take his promises. I don't learn from his word. And that I obey his commands. Look, what, I, what am I missing? I bet you've got a few Red Seas that you've missed along the way. 
I know I have, but I've also seen the times when I've humanly wanted to say no and have a yeah, but, but choose to say no, this could be a Red Sea and then watch it become one. And I, I'm not the same because of it. I mean, that's how life-changing God's experiences in our lives can be. And then when he handed the mantle over to Joshua, and we saw Joshua, the mighty warrior, you know, when the Lord said to him, now I want you to face Jericho, and he's ready, he's probably getting his ammunition all lined up, and he's getting his, his sword all shined up, and he's ready because he's the warrior. And God said, nope, I want you to just march around the city and blow the trumpets. Now, but it took faith for him to say, you know what, I'm going to believe that. I'm going to believe that God knows how to take down walls on his own, and he doesn't need me. He just needs me to be obedient. Now, that's faith. That's trusting to the sovereign, almighty God because he knew him. And there's the key. You saw their lives change the more they got to know him and that he was trustworthy. And whenever they, and they so now in Judges 2, in Judges chapter 2, I want you to see verse 10. When all the generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose. So this is the generation after Joshua. And look at here. It's only the next generation. It's the other generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. So it's just the very next generation that, that doesn't know about the Red Sea. They don't know the stories. They don't even, it says they don't even know the Lord nor the work that he did to bring Israel out of Egypt, to be the chosen people to eventually be the, the family that, that would bring a savior to the world. Now, why? Why didn't they know? Why did the next generation know? They weren't told. No one thought it important enough. You know what? Things just got busy. I bet that's what happened. Things just got busy. There was just no time. I mean, kids were going in all directions. We just couldn't sit and, 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 and go over the stories because, I mean, this one's got to go this one, this one's got to go this way. And, you know, okay, we'll skip into church for an hour, but I'm wearing my shorts because we're going afterwards. I mean, you, you know, I, I, don't, I don't mean to be silly here, but... This is what's happening. And we're seeing, our, we're seeing in Judges 2, look what happened to this generation. They weren't told. It wasn't a priority. So the next generation didn't even know about it. Things were, were a mess. Look at sitting in the verse 11. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And there again, fill in the blank. What's the bail? Oh, it's, it's um, anything you, you want to serve more than him. Yep, and it's something maybe you can see. That's a good one. Maybe it's something you can see because you know what? We can't actually see the Lord except, you know what? I can. I look in the mirror. I can see the Lord because I know what I used to be. 
So in some respects, I think, again, the more you get to know him, the more you see him change your life, and you know, it's, I'm seeing him at work here. Because I know me too well, and, and this isn't what it would be doing. Look, it says, it says, and they forsook the Lord. See, they made their choice. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They followed other gods. Look at they bowed down to them. Verse 13, they forsook the Lord. Again, look at verse 14. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of plunders. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around. You know, again, I'm going to say, you can read that and say, well, you know, that's kind of mean. You know, sometimes I think we better look at some of the things that we're battling and think, you know, God gets the blame for everything. But you know what? Some of it is because of, of our own lifestyle. And he said, you know what? Okay, you think you know better than I'm just going to hand you over. I wonder sometimes if our, I think there's two reasons for suffering. It's either to take Take Christians though, that, who love him and want to keep growing and maturing and, he, and, and pushing us forward. I think there's, there's a, sufferings will do that because you either take a suffering and, and you either go to your depressed state, your state of hopelessness and despair, or you say, you know what, this suffering, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move forward because the Lord is always up to something. I mean, this is what a suffering will do. It'll make you stronger and better and get to know more because I bet how often don't we open our Bibles more when, when we're suffering? But then I think another time of suffering is because we deserve it because it's consequences to our disobedience. And as we see the Lord do it, when we read things like this, no, we don't like to read this where it says he hands them over to his enemies, to the, their enemy, hands them over to their enemies. But he's saying, you know what? I'm going to have to let them do that because then maybe they will come to their senses and we see then they cry out when, they, when they're so at the end of their rope. I know it's the most uncomfortable place to be, but he brings us there because he said, okay, now what are you going to do with it? He brings us to the end of ourselves so that we will turn to him and he will deliver us. But this is the condition. This is the dark state. And so then you... Then you read about the different judges that come into play. And in chapter 4, judges, we're going we're gonna to talk about a man named Barak. <laughs> Sound familiar? <laughs> this particular Barak was a warrior. It said um, in chapter 4, right in the verse, in the first verse, it said, Israel, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. <laughs> So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan. Things probably got so bad, and that's the Lord's intent. I mean, you know, he wants them to what? Verse 3, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. I mean, look how long he's, look, for 20 years, he harshly oppressed the children, his children. Now Deborah, prophetess, the wife 
of Lapideth was judging Israel at the time. Verse 6, then she sent and called for Barak. He was, he was the commander of her army. And said um, in, verse, in verse 6, go and deploy troops. Take with you 10,000 men. Verse 8, and Barak said to her, if you go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. I'm thinking of this commander of the army looks at this woman and says, I'm not going if you're not going. I love that. I think that shows, see, we've got, you don't underestimate us women sometimes. Apparently, Deborah was the one, the right one at the time. And the Lord gave her what it took. And, and Barak, even though he was the commander of that army, knew that he wanted her by his side. Now, yeah, there was a lot. To me, I saw a little lack of faith. But yet, he also knew that Deborah walked with God, and he knew he wanted that with him. And then I watched Barack's faith kick in. And I, I love this because I think sometimes we, we need someone to come alongside of us sometime. I mean, in our human nature, yes, sometimes we flounder and maybe we feel, feel weak. But this is, this is why the body of Christ worked so well together. And I think you see these two working good. And, and then, and then um, she says, okay, but I want you to know, though, that victory will be in a woman's hands. So by your little lack of faith, I also want you to know that victory will be through a woman. And he's all automatically thinking of her. So I hope you read the story because, oh, blood and guts, wasn't it? I mean, you couldn't believe that a woman could do that, but I just think that when, you, when, when you're in that position, you can do it. The Lord gives you the strength to do it. But anyway, before we get to that, I want you to see in verse 14, then, Barak, then Deborah said to Barak, up for this is the day which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? She put that question to him. Okay, Barak, now. She put it in a question. So he had to answer it. Is the Lord, do you really believe that the Lord is ahead of you, Barak? And look how, look how his actions, see, sometimes it's not always words. It, that's why faith is an action word. It's so easy to say, oh, yeah, I believe, yeah, yeah, you know, but faith put into action is proof that you believe. Because look what he did. So Barak went down from the Mount Tabor with his 10,000 men following him. Verse 16, I love this line too, but Barak pursued. So why is Barak's name mentioned and not Deborah's in Hebrews 11? 
Because I think the writer of Hebrews wants us to go back like we're doing and go back to the story and see that, yes, Deborah was a great woman of faith. But not only did she lead the people, she, she took the commander of her army and by example, she was able to show her faith and then to watch his faith. And he went and he pursued Verse 22, another, and Barak pursued. See, he didn't give up. This is what faith in action does. You're not a quitter. You keep going till the job is done. Verse 23, so on that day, oh, I better tell you, in case you didn't read this story, I mean, I got to tell you that, you know, they were trying to get this Sisera. He was the commander of the other army, and boy, he was a rascal. You know, he kept, he kept eluding them all the time. And then finally, you know, finally he went to, to this, uh, he went to a woman named J.L., and, her, and, and she was Heber's wife. And she just kind of, she didn't get nervous, I'll tell you, that's the power of God. Because as a woman, and here comes this Sisera, the commander of the enemy's army, and all of a sudden he's at your door. But I'll tell you, the Lord will enable. This is where you start putting verses together. I can do all things through Christ. Because this is exactly what happened to this woman. Because she was a typical woman that probably didn't like blood and guts just like any of us, most of us women. And she had the nerve to take a tent peg and a hammer in her hand. And when she, he wanted a, he wanted a little food, a little water, but she gave him warm milk to lure him to sleep. I tell you, that's the Lord making sure she had a clear-headed mind. So when he, and then went softly to him and drove that peg right into his temple. And that not only did, did she, she had it right through his temple, that the, it went right through his head, and so she could get the end right in the ground. Boy, that's a hammer. <laughs> she had strength. You know, I don't care. You can read this story, but if you stop and you put yourself in it, Especially as a woman, I, there were so many lessons in there that the Lord takes away fear, that the Lord gives you a good sense of mind, that you can think clearly, that, that when you need it, you're given the strength and the courage. So on that day, verse 23, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan in the presence of the children of Israel and the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger. Okay, they're back on, they're back on track. And Deborah sings this song. And then at the end of chapter five, it says, so the land had rest for 40 years. Because of Deborah's example, because of Barak's willingness to obey because of Jael's um, willing to let the Lord use her. But then look, then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. 
verse 6 of chapter 6, so Israel was greatly impoverished by the Midianites. I mean, boy, I mean, they were wearing them down. But that's the point. The Lord wants them what? To cry out to him. So in verse 8, the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt, brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also I said to you, I am the Lord your God, so do not fear the gods of the Amorites in those land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat underneath the terebinth tree which was in Oprah, which belonged to Joash, and his son was named Gideon. Now Gideon thrashed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And then did you notice starting in verse 3, did this sound familiar? Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. I got a few questions. If the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? <laughs> See, we always blame God. And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt, but now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites? Yeah, I got a question about that. <laughs> you know, and this, it's no one's fault but your own. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the land of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, Here we go again. Oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said, Surely I will be with you. Then he said to him, okay, then uh, I am going to have to ask for a sign. So the angel of, the, of God, verse 20, the angel of God said to him, okay, take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread and the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord of God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. So he says, Gideon, I want you to go, and I want you to take an uh, offering. Take, verse 25, take your father's young bull and a second bull of seven years and tear down the altar of Baal and your father, that your father has and cut down the wooden image that is beside it. Isn't that sad? Gideon, I want you to go, and I want you to take a bull and a second bull of seven years and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has. 
and cut it down and cut down the wooden image that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord, your God, on top of this rock in the proper arrangement and take the second bull and offer a burnt offer sacrifice with the word of wood of the image which you shall cut down. So Gideon took 10 men from among his servants. Now, did you get this? And did as the Lord had told him to do, but because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. Does that remind you of anybody that came at night? I know, Nicodemus. I mean, how you, you know, that just shows human nature, doesn't it? This is what fear, human nature will cause fear. But he at least was obedient, but he did it at night. The next morning, oh, boy, they are mad. They are mad. They're so mad that they go to Gideon's dad. Because they realize that it's Gideon who did it. So they go to his dad in verse 30. Then the men of the city said to Joash, the dad, bring out your son that he may die because he has torn down the altar of Baal. This is where I have to say, this is where Joash, even though he had the Baal and the wooden image next to him, all of a sudden he came, he came to his senses. And because of the courage of his son, he said to them, would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to the death. If he is God, let him plead for himself. Way to go, Joash. What did he face those people and said, hey, let him, if he's God, let him defend himself. Therefore, on that day, they called Gideon, Jerobel, Jerobel. Let Baal plead against him because he has torn down the altar. So when you see that name, Jerubbabel, I think that's the way it's supposed to say it, Jerubbabel. It's funny how I can practice these names all week or all month, and I get here, and it's, they look like a bunch of just letters to me. But yeah, Jerubbabel, but that's the same as Gideon. Down in verse 36, so Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have said, uh, I need another sign. Look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor, if there is dew on the fleece only, and if it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When, when he rose early the next morning, he squeezed the fleece together, and he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me, but I'm going to ask you for another one. Let me test I pray just once more with the fleece. Let it, let it now be dry only on the fleece, but then let the ground be wet. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on the ground. Well, verse 2, the, peop, the, the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many. I think this is where we've learned this story in Sunday school. You know, I've, Gideon, you know, I think the Lord wanted to see, trust me, Gideon, because a lot of times we can trust big numbers. Gideon had, look what he had. I mean, he had 22,000. He had, well, he had over 22,000 because when he said, we're going to have to get rid of some, I, well, he explained why. The people who are 
with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn, depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. So, 20, 32,000. Boy, you can be kind of confident with those numbers. So, the Lord took 22,000, 10,000 still remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. So bring him to the water. Verse 5, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those who lap, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. Now, you can try to figure out, you know, what was the idea, whether maybe it was just 300. The Lord wanted just 300, and it just so happened that 300 lapped like a dog. But yet there was a couple times where we know that the other ones got on their knees. Now, those who lapped like a dog went down and brought a Everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart for himself. Those were 300. See, the rest of them got down on their knees. And if you're on your feet or whether you're down on your knees, which one is the most ready? I mean, it just sounded to me like the 300, even though they were, doing, they were still kind of able to watch and they would have been able to get... To go quick. Again, maybe I'm reading way too much in it because maybe the Lord just said, I want 300 people. By the 300 men who'd laughed, I will save you and deliver the Midianites. And then in verse 13, just before, it says, And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. I've had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and, and struck it so that it fell and overturned and the tent, the tent collapsed. Then his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand, God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and, the, and its interpretation that he worshipped. Now, do you think that that was coincidental or lucky that Gideon just happened to be walking by when he heard those two talking? No, I hope you've taken those two words out of your vocabulary because this wasn't coincidence. It wasn't lucky. It was God's grace. He wanted Gideon to really hear it and go with strength and confidence. This is just another one of God's provisions. Isn't that something to know that God, when God calls you to do a job, he's going to make it clear to you. You might be nervous. Your heart might be, be beating. You might even be perspiring. Your hands might be wet. But yeah, you go with confidence because you know that I am is going before you. Verse 22, when the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. 
Judges chapter 8. I just wish I could have left it there and said, oh, great job, Gideon. By faith, you believed. You took, instead of 32,000, you took the 300 and you believed. And you watched God work. And for, for a minute, verse 22, it said, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us both, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Boy, I'm underlining that, and I'm thinking, way to go, Gideon, way to go. Oh, Gideon, why did you have to say this? The next verse, I would like to make a request, though, that each of you would give me the earrings from the plunder, for they had, had gotten golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So they answered, we will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw into the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Wow. Verse 27, then Gideon made it into an ephod, ephod and set it up in his city, Oprah. And all Israel played the harlot with it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his house. You know, that's awful harsh language, but you know what? We have to hear it harshly, because you know what Gideon started to do? Compromise with the world. And the writer of Judges made it very clear that, boy, you, know, you start playing with the world. You start letting a little bit of the world's and your pride or whatever start, and it was a snare to Gideon and his household. And look at verse 33. So it was as soon as Gideon was dead, you see, that kind of atmosphere just continued that the children of Israel again played the harlot. I wrote in my Bible, pride goeth before fall. Because look what happened. As soon as Gideon was dead, he started it. They played right into it. And they played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal their god. So, now, chapter 11. We have a man named Jephthah. That was a name that I, this was a, this was a story I wasn't real familiar with. And here's Jephthah, the Gideonite, the Giladite, I mean, was a mighty man of valor. But the, he, he kind of had a past because it's that he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead begat Jephthah, so... Gilead's wife bore sons, and they decided that, you know, hey, we're not going to take kindly to this half-breed brother of ours. His mother was a harlot, so he's not going to be any part of our inheritance. And so they kind of sent him away, and he fled, verse 3. 
But because this was another dark time of Israel, it came to pass, verse 4, after a time the people of Am Ammon made war against Israel. So it was when the people of Ammon made war against Israel that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Because, see, he was a mighty man of valor from verse 1. So now, all of a sudden, you know what? He's not so bad. We need him. Verse 9, so Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? Because he had come out previously and said, you know, you hate me. Why in the world are you bringing me back? So then he said, okay, so let's say I do my job well, then, then what? Then the elders of Gilead said, verse 10, the Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do according to your words. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people, made him head and commander over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Well, he tried reasoning them with them. He tried reasoning with the enemy, but they didn't do well with reasoning. So, in verse 29, he started uh, advancing toward them in a more aggressive way. In verse 30, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt sacrifice. So Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. Now, that is such a sad story. I mean, it sounds like that isn't, that isn't so bad. See, what he was expecting, because they had animals. Animals lived right close to them. They were, he was expecting that, that, um, that an animal would, would come out and that he would be able to offer that animal as a sacrifice. But you know what? He wasn't thinking. And the reason why he wasn't thinking is, look what in verse 30. There is a word there. If you will indeed deliver, then I will. What does that sound like to you? That sounds like bartering to me. If you do this, then I will do this. I mean, I used to hear when people would come back from war, they, they said, man, I was in the trenches, and I said, if you get me out of this, Lord, I'll teach middle school Sunday school. I mean, you know, they, they would make some hard thing. If you get me out of here, then I will do it. I mean, what does bartering say? When you've got to barter with the Lord, that is a, that is a lack of what? That's a lack of faith. But I think sometimes we do say that. I think we get into that position. If you do this, I'll do this. What should he be in praying? Lord, your will is perfect, and I'm going to follow in your commands, and I will do what you tell me to do, and, and, th and thus may it be so. I mean, that's what he should have said. 
So the Lord has a way of teaching him a lesson. So the first thing that came out of his house, look at verse 34, when Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing, and she was his only child. Now, that is one hard story. Now, you know, maybe you read that and because it says here that um, she asked to go away with her friends for two months. Verse 38, and he gave her permission and she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. Some believe, and it was so at the end of the two months, she returned to her father and, they, and he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed. She knew no man and it became a custom in Israel. Some believe that he actually sacrificed her, but yet that really can't be so because sacrificing humans was against Israel law. So what it probably was more likely was to tell his daughter that she would not be able to know a man. She would never be able to marry. She would never have a family. She would never have children. And that was devastating. So the reason why I say that is because it said she bewailed her virginity on the mountain. And then when she came back, he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed. She knew no man. So... That was, that was the harsh, believe me, it was harsh punishment because it said, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Japheth. So, I don't know, I guess you can take it for how you want to interpret it, but no matter what, it was, it was a lesson that the Lord wanted to teach is, you don't barter with me. You either trust me or you don't. It's a very valuable lesson. According to Judges 12, verse 7, Japheth judged Israel for six years. Chapter 13, again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines. That was the worst enemy of all. And it said right there, the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines. Now, there was a certain man whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren, had no children. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said, Indeed, now you are barren and have no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now, therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink and not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall, not, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall, set, shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. A Nazarite was uh, someone who was set apart for God's service. Samson was set apart for God's service. We know the story, and I know there's, there's things where we don't understand because, it, you know, I get into the 14th chapter after Samson grew up and you know, he was out into the end of the fields in the first part of chapter 14. And he sees this Philistine woman and he says to his mother and father in verse 2, get her for me. 
What a brat. Do you think that? What a brat. Then his father and mother said, is there no woman among the daughters of your brother? Because see, that was, that was a no question. They were not supposed to marry a pagan. Verse 4, this is where you think, okay, but what? But this father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. For at that time, the Philistines had dominion over Israel. So you think, well, it must have been God's will that he marry a foreign pagan, the little brat. Now, this is where I had to do a lot of thinking. <laughs> because you read that, and that's, that's the way when you first look at it. But, you know, I went to James chapter 1, where it says, don't ever say that God tempts. God would never tempt. God would never say, I'm going to use sin to accomplish my purpose. There's just no way. If you know your God, there's no way because he hates sin. So there's no way that he would say, well, I'm just going to have Samson be a brat and, 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 and marry this pagan woman. And I told you this night was going to be about grace. And I think Samson's life is a life that, I mean, it said the Holy Spirit kept coming upon Samson. And you know what I think he did? Thumbed his nose to him. The Holy Spirit of God came upon him and wanted him to, I mean, God was going to accomplish his purpose. Now, and God did, despite who Samson was and what he did. But to me, Samson's life is all about grace. And, and you think that he is in Hebrews 11. Yeah, to me, it is amazing, but that's why it's called amazing grace. That's why it's called marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. Because there isn't one part of this story that he wasn't a brat. And Samson did what Samson wanted to do. I mean, as a Nazarite, he did everything against what a Nazarite was. He wasn't supposed to take strong drink. And man, this kid liked to party. So you know what his drink was. He was not supposed to be by any dead carcass. Well, look what he did. He went right into that dead line. He was not supposed to cut his hair. I mean, these were all visible symbols of him being set apart for God. And the brat went his own way. But you know what? I just marvel. I just plain marvel at God's grace because all of Samson's life and, you know, the way he did the riddle and then, then he, he went and killed 30 guys to be able to pay off his debt. And, and then, and then um, you know, they give his wife over to someone else and then he's so mad that he takes 300 foxes and, and puts torches to him and he Burns, you know, I mean, he, the story is just unreal. I hope you read it. The details are extraordinary. 
And yet look at, look at what God said to this couple. I'm going to read it again to you. It says in verse 1, chapter 13, And the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Okay, excuse me. This is what his purpose was. Down in verse 5. And he shall begin to deliver. He shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. So what was Samson's purpose? To start the process of Israel being released from the Philistines' grip. Despite all of what Samson did, and the whole thing with Delilah, And you think about how they captured him in his weak state and they took out his eyes and then they prayed him in front and they used him to be the entertainment for a party. I have to say, one of the harsh, harshest words in Samson's life, because the Lord was trying, you know, with his spirit and with everything being put on him. Look at him, verse, the end of verse 20 of chapter 16, but he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Yeah, it wasn't the hair. His strength wasn't in his hair. The key was he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. You know what? The Lord said, that, that's it. I have tried and tried through the power of my spirit to get you to do it right. And, you know, I, my grace is sufficient and I am going to accomplish what I set out to do to your parents in verse 5. I think this is one story. I mean, even though I have to say in verse 28, I started because I think if there's one thing that I want to see that Samson did right, and, and it's a stretch, believe me, because listen to this in verse 28 of 16. Then Samson called to the Lord saying, Oh, Lord God, that's the only, that's the only good thing I can see that he called out to God. He called out to God. He recognized who God was. To me, I guess that's why his name got in Hebrews 11. Because he knew who his God was, and he called out to him. But he said, oh, Lord, remember me. Strengthen me, I pray, just this once, oh, God, that I may with one blow, what? Look. Take vengeance on the Philistines because of what they did to my two eyes. So still, did he learn? He still didn't. He still wants payback. He still wants vengeance because of what they did to me. Samson was all about Samson. And that one line is the only good thing that I can see is that he at least knew who God was and he called out to him. And again, by God's grace, he intervened and 
Verse 30, Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might and the temple fell on the Lord, on the Lord's and all the people who were in it. So the dead that he killed at his death were more than he had killed in his life. Despite who Samson was, that brat, God still accomplished his purpose through him. Tell you, that's why we sang those songs tonight, because I think that's marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. Okay, then, you know, there was, I had you read First and Second Samuel. If you want to see a contrast from Samson to Samuel, you know the story about how Hannah didn't have children and, you know, the other wife made fun of her and then she went to the house of the Lord and begged and Eli thought she was drunk and she was. She said, no, I'm just so intently praying to the Lord. But Hannah got up with such faith, believing that God was going to uh, use her in, in some miraculous way. And it said she got up and she could eat. And she just, to me, that's such a sign of faith when you trust God because you, there was no more worry. There was no more self-pity. There was nothing. She believed. And she didn't, she wasn't given the promise. She just surrendered to the Lord. And you know what? She dared believe that God's will would be done. Do you know that real healing is when you say that? Real healing is when you say, I know we want to think that a healing is when we get our way, when we get a physical healing, but I believe that the healing, any healing, is when we finally say, Lord, your will be done in my life. That's true healing. And I think Hannah helped prove that to me. Because she didn't know she was going to have Samson, but she just got up from that prayer meeting after she surrendered it all, and she trusted God's will. She has Samson, Samuel. She, she brings him back. And what I think is so marvelous is that after this child is grown, I don't know, after he was weaned, she brought him back to, to the house of the Lord. She surrendered because that's what she promised the Lord. Verse 11 of 1 Samuel chapter 1, you don't have to look up that, just let me, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the high priest. This child, the faith of a child I mean, we know that. I mean, that's why Jesus said, let the little kids, let the children come to me and don't prevent them for such is the kingdom of heaven. These children got it. They don't question. They just believe. They just trust. When your children were little, wasn't it just so beautiful when they came into a, a questionable situation or when they became a little fearful? What was the first thing they did? They grabbed your hand and then all was well. And you knew that was your job, and you hold, you held on to that little hand. There's something about a child's trust, and that's why he said, I, I love that childlike trust. Take my hand and believe that I will never lead you down the wrong path. I don't lead my children down the wrong path, but I'm not going to always tell you where it's going to go. I just want you to follow. That's why he says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. 
Verse 12 of that same chapter of 1 Samuel 2, it said, now the sons of Eli were corrupt. I mean, Samuel was in bad environment, and yet because he was such a little child of God and believed, the Lord used Samuel in such a mighty way. We know it was Samuel that went and found David and heard the Lord say, now don't pick one like you did before because, you know, Saul was a head taller. He looked kingly. He said, this time, don't judge by outward appearance. God doesn't judge by outward appearance. And then we see David come into the picture. Now, we, we know that, that David, um, he had one characteristic. I mean, we could, we could be here all night, but David had one characteristic. What was the characteristic that you know described David? He was known as what? A man after God's own heart. However, what's one of the first stories that we learn and what pops in your mind when you hear about David? Who comes to your mind? Bathsheba. So was David perfect? Of course not. If you go to the chapter in 2 Samuel about Bathsheba, you will notice that, that she wasn't the main sin in the problem. She was just the result of the main sin. The main sin was, it was springtime, and it's supposed to be that the kings go to war with their men. And David said, nah, don't feel like it. I'm just going to send my, uh, my other guy. So, disobedience. You know what I'm deciding disobedience is? When I do it my way instead. That's disobedience. It's when I think I know better than God. Isn't that pathetic? Disobedience is when I think I know better than God. And there is an instance where he thought he, was, he knew better. Hey, I'm King David. No one's going to tell me what to do. And I don't feel like going. Well, then, guess what? Though He was in a bad place, and he was starting down that road. And that's all of a sudden, woo-hoo, there she is. But we see in, in Psalm 51, we see his heart of repentance. So I thought, okay, quickly, how are we going to look at David? How, how is he such a man of faith? He was a man after God's own heart. What does that mean? If, if that means that we don't have to be, that we're not perfect, but yet we still can have a heart after God's. And I wrote a couple things down because he just plain totally believed. He did not doubt. His sin came in his pride, but he did not doubt God. He absolutely had faith in his God. And I, I just have to tell you, this past, this past couple weeks, there was, there was an article where a minister took um, a position of saying that doubt is sin. Oh, man, did he ever get crucified for saying that doubt is sin. Because everybody that came after him and said, you can't help it. Doubt is just, yeah, it's every one of us have doubted. But you know what? We have to come to grips with the fact that Jesus said to Thomas, I want you to believe. I don't want you to doubt. James wrote, 
Don't doubt because you're just tossed about. You think about, can you doubt because this is this, because when I put my two cents into that debate, boy, they came after me saying, faith and doubt. You can have faith and you can have doubt. This is what one big theologian tried to say to me. You can have faith and doubt at the same time. I've got faith, but I doubt. And I said, what a lousy excuse. What a lousy excuse of trying to appease yourself for not dare trusting him and believing him and denying yourself and taking a hold of his hand and doing it his way. You just want to say, well, I doubt, but that's okay. I still have faith. That's impossible. You big theologian, where in the world did you learn that from? You got to be careful about these man-made things that want to compromise. Faith and doubt to me are opposites. You can't say you doubt his word and then say, oh, but I, but I believe his word. Well, I'm telling you, you got to be careful nowadays because some of these theologians, they're, they're coming up with some real cockamamie ideas. And one of them was saying that faith and doubt can go together. It's baloney. Another thing about being a, a man after God's own heart is that you do live by faith. Another one is that you love God's word because you know it's God talking to you. And you, and you take the time to make sure that you, that you know this. David was a man after God's own heart because he was so thankful. He was so thankful he was repentant. I mean, you, you read some of the Psalms of David. You know he was repentant. You know he knew what sin was. You know that he knows what grace is. You read Psalm 100 when, when he, you, he just, or Psalm 101, he just rips in praise. That's what a man after God's own heart, perfect no, but do you, do you walk by faith? Do you believe and trust in him? Yes. Are you thankful for his grace? Yes. Are you, are you a, a sinner saved by that grace? Yes. Do you love his word? Yes. That's a, that's a man, a woman after God's own heart. And in the last couple minutes, I just, I just want to take you to the story of Jeremiah. Does anybody know about, about the faith of Jeremiah? He's called the, the wailing or the weeping prophet because this was a major prophet in the Old Testament that worked so hard at the kingdom of Judah. See, because did you know that the kingdom of Israel or Israel as a nation broke into two parts? I think I said this the first week of our study. And the, the nation of Israel, it broke into two parts. The, the kingdom of Israel went into captivity by the Assyrians, and they never came back. But there was a little kingdom called the kingdom of Judah. 
I mean, they were Israelites too. And Jeremiah was the prophet to that little kingdom of Judah. And they were wayward. They were playing the same song and dance that we have heard in the judges. It's just hard to believe that this kingdom, this precious children of God, were just so rebellious. And Jeremiah, they spent his life weeping over them. And, and finally, he just had to lower the boom and say to them, you know what? Because he was a prophet and the Lord worked through him and spoke to him and so he was to deliver the message. The Lord said, you're going into captivity too. You're going into captivity to Babylon. But you're going to go for... 70 years. You're going to go for 70 years, and then I'm going to bring you back. Because, see, this is when you, this is when you, you read Jeremiah 29 that we all love so much. We know it says in Jeremiah 29, 10, For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good work toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts and the plans that I have for you. A peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with your whole heart and I will be found by you. You know what he's basically saying to these people? You're going in captivity. You're going into a 70-year timeout because I want you to come to your senses and I want you to live there and I want you to... to um, be a witness there and a testimony there. And I want you to just go on living there. But in 70 years, I'm bringing you back because I have plans for you. What were the plans that God had for that kingdom of Israel or kingdom of Judah? Jesus. Did they deserve it? No, that's grace. He let the kingdom of Israel go to Assyria and they never came back. But he promised Abraham back in Genesis 12... And God does not renege on a promise. And so he took that little kingdom of Judah and said, you're going to time out for 70 years, but I will bring you back because I have plans for you. I'm bringing a Savior through you. That's what he means when he says, I'll give you a hope and a future. Do you know who it was during those 70 years? Do you know some of the people that were, that were involved in the 70 years in Babylon? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They, just, they did exactly what God told them to do. When you go there, I don't know if Daniel was born there, whether his parents were the ones that, or grandparents that went into exile, I don't know. But somebody came to their senses. The timeout worked because whoever taught Daniel did a mighty good job. 
And even during this captivity, look how God was with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, you got Nebuchadnezzar, this nutcase that saw such great things in Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but they never compromised. Read the story. Read how, how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said when, when Nebuchadnezzar erected this big statue of himself and said, everybody better bow down. And if you don't, you're going into the fiery furnace. Those three men, whoever taught them in this town of Babylon, they came to their senses and they taught these boys don't play around with an almighty God. Shadmach, Red, Meshach, and Abednego looked right at Nebuchadnezzar and said, can't do it. Neither our God will protect us or we'll go be with him. Isn't that a great way to live? Instead of in fear and God's going to deliver the way he wants to deliver because he promises to deliver his children because he's got plans for us. Our plans aren't just on this earth, but our plans are for a future in heaven with him. What a way to live, to have that kind of faith, that kind of confidence. So you know the story. They were thrown in the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar says, didn't we just throw three guys in there? Oh, I see four. Amazing. Take these three guys out, they can't even smell smoke on them. And then Daniel delivers this, this um, dream interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar and said, you know what? <laughs> you're going to become a wild man. You're going to grow claws. You're going to be, you, you're, you're going to lose your mind. You're going to go insane. And if this, he did. But you know what? The Lord used that to bring Nebuchadnezzar around. And Nebuchadnezzar became sane again. And I believe we're going to see him in glory. Isn't that amazing? That's grace. And then Daniel tries to tell Nebuchadnezzar's son, who becomes king next, he tries to tell Belshazzar, let me tell you about your dad. Didn't listen. So Belshazzar, all of a sudden, one day, he sees this hand writing on the wall. Whoa. Daniel says, ah, let me tell you what that means. You're going down. And he did. King number three, Darius. Daniel tries to tell him, and, and Darius really likes Daniel, knows his gifts and abilities. Of course, the other, Darius's other men get jealous and, and come up with this, this, um, this plan because they know that Daniel goes to the window every three times a day and is not afraid to bow down and pray to his God. So they come up with a plan and they say, um, sign right here, Darius. Um, if anybody doesn't just come to you and bow to you um, in this 30-day period, then uh, they go to the lion's den. Sounds good to me. All of a sudden, his friend, Daniel. I often wondered when I read this story, don't you, that you think when Daniel knew that this was the decree, you'd think you'd have shut the drapes. 
Yeah, but that just shows my lack of faith. I want to be, I want to be like him. Keep the drape open. Do what you know is right. Doesn't matter what happens to this body. Because our soul is in my father's hands and no one or nothing can snatch me from it. I dare to live like that. So he got thrown in the lion's den. (laughs) These are the stories we all know. But just think about what that all means. It took courage and strength. You know, when I look at that verse in Hebrews 11.1, what describes faith? Faith in the different versions. I brought out different versions. And I love doing that because one version described faith as hope. Another described faith as assurance. Another one describes faith as confident. Faith is when you are sure, you're confident, your hope is in the Lord, not in this world. I had you, I had you finish this off by going into the next chapter, just a little bit. Therefore, because we've studied Hebrews 11, therefore, we have this crowd of witnesses. In other words, We've studied now, look for all summer, you think about how many of these people, we've studied every one of those examples in Hebrews 11. And those are our cloud of witnesses. And the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, because we have proof that faith works, the writer now shifts, shifts and talks to you and I. And says, we have had demonstration after demonstration. How could you not want to live by faith? Hope in him, trust in him, have assurance in him, be confident in him. What a way to get up every morning. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. This is my story, this is my song. And then I asked you, how do we do that? How do we live by faith? And I just love how he uses Jesus as the example. When he says, look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. If you don't keep your eyes fixed on him, the writer of Hebrews says, then welcome to being discouraged and weary. But if you don't want to live life discouraged and weary, then live by faith. And his word will keep proving it to you over and over that it's a great way to live. Father, thank you for this study this summer. We've had four great months. We've had four great times together where we really went through one chapter but then went to the Old Testament and we really devoured these people and learned. Now, Lord, we know that you put these people in there so that we can relate, that we can live accordingly. Lord, now may we not shut our Bibles. They are always to be open. 
because we, you are talking to us. You are teaching us. You are training us. You are growing us. And so as we go into that gospel of Matthew, it's just like we're going from Old Testament, and then it's like Matthew is that gospel that transitions the old to the new, and Jesus, the Savior, has come. And now we are just living proof of what salvation is all about. Not in and of ourselves, but only because of a Savior. Lord, may we love you so much. May we be so grateful for Jesus that we allow you to do in us what you want to do. May we live by faith. May we obey. May we live in grace. And then we will find life. Life abundant. That's abundant living. The way Jesus said, I came to do and give you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Thanks for coming, everybody, and we will see, I hope, a lot of you in a couple weeks.